Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we challenge the operating systems underlying our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for thriving in an era where thinking or feeling may as well be criminal activities. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, energy and environment researcher and author of End Times, A Brief Guide to the End of the World, Brian Walsh. Probably the only way we're likely to go is forward, is kind of trying to sort of innovate around these challenges to essentially outrun the limits that are are creeping up behind us. Brian will be sharing some of the ways the human story could end and how best to engage with these dark but much too probable futures. We'll also be launching a new feature today, Real People Doing Real Things, with attorney and founder of The Seed Collective, Adrian Haynes. It's time to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Team Human is a commercial-free show produced out of the Basement Media Squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism. We are entirely dependent on our listeners for support, which you can do by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support, or find us at patreon.com slash teamhuman. You'll get access to premium material, membership cards, digital books, live events, and more. We're also on Medium, where you can read written versions of my monologues and stream the show. Sometimes people think that by being so pro-human, that this show is somehow anti-tech or anti-science. And that's not really true at all. But neither is the idea that technology or science are ever truly neutral. Guns don't kill people, people kill people, but guns are much more likely to kill people than, say, pillows. Both are technologies, both are the products of science, but they come from very different trajectories and approaches. So today, what we now think of as the scientific method 
is actually a very limited approach to science, born in the Renaissance when the father of empiricism, Francis Bacon, promised that science would let man grasp nature by the hair, hold her down, and force her into submission. Those are the actual words he used. And even accounting for the sexism of the period, he's not just talking about submission here. He's not just subduing nature, but in his imagination anyway, holding her by the hair. It's a full-on rape fantasy. Now, why would science be like a rape? Because guys like Bacon were afraid of nature, of, of the dark, of, of mud, of women. And that's where all the scary, inexplicable, and unpredictable things happen. So science of this kind was meant to quantify and identify all of those things, shine light on them so they wouldn't be so scary. It was an act of control and reduction, dissection, elimination of mystery, but it's led to a dangerously reductive scientific orthodoxy, one that doesn't take the weird living paradoxes of nature and people into account. It's promoted an uncompromised form of atheism, a kind of orthodoxy where you have to accept that nothing has any meaning or weirdness at all, no spirit, no soul, not even any consciousness. Consciousness is just an illusion perpetrated by the DNA so that we protect it from generation to generation. And that's how science and scientists alike ended up so easily falling prey to amoral activities and situations from bomb making and mind control through behavioral psychology and economics to flying on the Lolita Express. The one time I managed to get in the same room with some of the most respected scientists in the world, I ended up saying things that guaranteed I was never invited back. And I didn't even mean to. They were explaining how consciousness may not even exist, that at best, it's what they call an emergent phenomenon, that matter gets so complex that life emerges from it, then life gets so complex that mind emerges from that. And it all started with the Big Bang that no one can explain, but that doesn't mean anything either. And I suggested that the word emergence that they kept throwing around was a bit of a hand wave. This thing just happens. I offered that maybe, just maybe, consciousness preceded matter. That there may be some thought or energy animating things. And they, they laughed me nearly out of the room. They called me a superstitious and a new ager and that there's nothing but matter and space. There's nothing going on here. Like, right, move, move right along. Science and technology make things better because they give us more control over a mindless, cold, meaningless universe. And I tried to work with them. I mean, this was 20 years ago, and I was a lot, lot less skillful at this than I am now. Not that I'm so skillful, but at least I tried better. And I offered that maybe the universe itself has some properties, some leanings that we're not fully aware of, that even if we don't believe in God, mightn't the universe be imbued with some moral structure, some kind of karmic logic, that, that when we do good, we make things better? better. And they laughed again and called me 
an essentialist. I had to go look that up on Wikipedia that night. Then they moved on to just calling me a moralist, which I knew what that meant. So I ended up going home with my tail between my legs. And I wondered, did I, did I really have to purge this childlike, maybe Jewish sensibility that was clouding my rational mind? Was this just noise preventing me from seeing the signal of true and pure science? And no, I still to this day, I argue no. If I suffer from some sort of morality, so be it. Because they're suffering from amorality. That's how they end up able to justify that the world is getting better, using the same sorts of metrics that the World Bank uses to measure the success of a so-called developing economy. It's like someone running faster the more they use steroids. Things look much better for a while anyway. And it dovetails ever so neatly with the priorities of neoliberalism and corporate funders, all in the name of the same progress initiated by Francis Bacon to hold down nature. And now we find out that some of these very same enclaves of science and technology are mixed up with pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, his dirty money, and underage sex slaves on tap. And well, The downside of this amoral, nature-controlling, quasi-eugenic quest becomes all too apparent. No, we don't have to believe in a god to be moral, but we can't want to be gods either. Maybe you can have your way with underage Russian girls, but you can't rape nature and get away with it. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. We're launching a new feature this week, Real People Doing Real Things. Real People Doing Real Things. Hello? Hi. The idea here is that we so often speak with people who are thinking about things, blogging about things, tweeting about things, making websites for things, creating organizations and networks for other people to do things, but we very rarely talk to people who are actually doing things. Real people doing real things. So we've been traveling the world in search of such rare humans actually involved in activities where they do stuff. Some of them even use their hands or tools. Others meet and help people in real life. It's a fascinating and counterintuitive approach to making the world a better place. To do something. We found our first real person doing real things in Kansas City, Kansas, where she works as an attorney, founder of the Black Female Attorneys Network, the Seed Collective, and the Multicultural Business Collective, Front Porch Alliance. And she's a Kaufman Foundation innovator in residence, Adrian Haynes. I was particularly interested in Haynes' free clinic in Kansas City, where she offers legal advice to people starting businesses against all odds. Real people doing real things. Hello? Hi. In a way, I'm, I'm interested first in you founded something called the Multicultural Business Coalition. So NBC first started, I was running an incubator and I would go to this um, week of events called Global Entrepreneurship Week, which I think this year is 11 years old across the country. It started by Global Entrepreneurship Network. But I mean, there would be 
no one yet, you know, no one there of color, no people of color, maybe just me and maybe three other people. And so I would go, I went for a year. The next year I asked the organizers, I said, Hey, if I bring 25 people, can we get in for free? <laughs> they said, yes, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Um, and then the year after that, I reached out to some organizations that I had been working with through the incubator network. And I said, Hey, let's host a happy hour for all of our communities and let them know about Global Entrepreneurship Week. Because what I was realizing, especially running an incubator in construction, <laughs> no one was using the word entrepreneur. So it was these language barriers and these really deep silos, but of established and traditional business communities. So we were trying to kind of get our groups to mesh a little bit better. And so 17 organizations came together to host that first happy hour in 2015. We had like 300 people come through. Um, and I think our community, like you could just feel in the room that it was good for them to see us all working together because it really showed that collaboration was our most important you know, priority, not competing with one another because, you know, the Greater Kansas City Chamber of Commerce is working hopefully with the same folks that are members of the Hispanic Chamber and perhaps the Gay and Lesbian Chamber as well or the Asian Chamber or all the other subgroups that were really designed to serve a diverse business community. So today we have over 30 members. We meet, we used to just meet quarterly. Now we meet every other month. We focus on professional development as, you know, kind of organization leaders, but then we still do our events for our communities. And this year we did a full week of events called NBC Tour Week. It was six days, I think 32 events, but great turnout. And it's just another great display of collaboration and the fact that entrepreneurs are all over our city, but sometimes they don't get a chance to participate because they're, you know, paying their bills, trying to eat, trying to run the business, et cetera. So, that's really what NBC focuses on is keeping us connected as as organizations, continuing to provide, you know, this kind of united front and to try to provide some data around the multicultural business community too. So we've been fortunate to work with organizations like Kaufman and the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City too. So but NBC is an entrepreneurial nonprofit. So, you know, as needs arise, we try to focus on them. Well you're doing is you know is local you know if if not actually certainly local in spirit but most of it's local it's it's regional and that kind of frees you up from so much of the kind of left right political national ideological insanity you know what i mean it's like just grounded in reality yeah that is it is very refreshing for me um i do appreciate that <laughs> because honestly regardless of what happens um, in Washington, D.C., there's still be people on the grounds in their communities trying to keep their lights on in their business, trying to create jobs. And so by kind of focusing on that and keeping attuned to what our region is doing, if we do that well enough, we can also help create policy for entrepreneurs to help them continue to do that well. So that's one of the things NBC has been thinking about this year is what does it look like for us to put together you know, a legislative agenda that supports all entrepreneurs. So those are things, you know, it's always something new. <laughs> yeah. And that's a hard one, you know, because, you know, you would think that regulation would help small businesses. But so much of the time when the regulation is written by the largest monopoly players, the regulations are almost designed as if as if they were designed to keep out smaller players from competing with the with the ones who are at the table. 
Yeah. And, you know, but like there's Nick here, I'll share an example that came up during a policy conversation that we hosted during NBC Tour Week. Uh, We had a panel on policy and power. (laughs) And one of the things that came up was that the Missouri Secretary of State's office had changed one of the rates to filing an LLC. I can't remember what it was changed to. Maybe it was like $80. And because of public response and feedback, they minimized that rate. But that is a policy that could be detrimental to entrepreneurs who need that rate to be, you know, nominal to get that shield of limited liability. So I think sometimes, like, yes, policy is definitely influenced by the big boys, but also sometimes I think it's created in a vacuum. So we need opportunities to kind of listen to entrepreneurs and have professional organizations and service providers be able to communicate that in a policy way to say, hey, that policy maybe wasn't considered for all of us. So it's about communication, too. Right. And the people are often surprised that, like, state legislators, they're pretty accessible. You know, it's not like calling the White House. You know, they're looking for constituents to tell them things and giving them stuff, actual things that they can work on. They know, oh, you mean you don't have, you can't put medical leave like that in your employee contract because of this regulation? Oh, well, we'll just go fix that. You know, I'm surprised by how amenable they are. And what I love, I have to just give my kudos to Congresswoman Sharice David. I mean, she was on a panel for us during NBC Tour Week, and the Congresswoman is and was an entrepreneur. So she was also intimately aware of both the highs and the lows, and maybe even how she was personally impacted by policy. So she's also, you know, she's walked it, which has been really helpful, too. I'm interested, I guess, personally and professionally, what are you seeing now as kind of the biggest challenge that you're facing? In other words, what problem are you are you wrestling with most actively right now? What I'm looking at right now through my Kaufman Innovator and Residence Fellowship is probably the best um, answer I could share there. So about two years ago, they gathered us, seven of us together, um, to participate in this two-year fellowship to really understand and to analyze the systemic challenge that we had seen in our work and try to find and create and maybe even model a, a potential solution. And so the great part about the fellowship was they told us if we're if we know what we want to do when we start, we're thinking too small. So through a, a lot of research and some exploration, I stumbled upon this concept of innovation districts, which of course are happening all over the country. Um, and the Brookings Institute has put out some great research and Mr. Bruce Katz. Um, but what I noticed in the three models and in the hindsight reports was that I think it said 50% of the districts were located in or near distressed communities. And then the hindsight report said that more than 50% of the jobs did not require an advanced degree, like 50% of the jobs created in these actual districts. Um, And so I had done my, the incubator I ran was in a, a a former commercial district in the urban core. And so I also had just really kind of felt the pain of seeing the district not live up to its potential. And so one of the challenges that I'm working on right now is the proposal of a fourth type of innovation district that starts with community first Um, to say, okay, community, what do we have here? What do we need? Who are we? (laughs) And how can we own what we create? And so I'm working in three communities here in Kansas City to to pilot the community innovation model design. Um, And really the, the hope is that 
it allows a community who perhaps has been living through a view of lack or, you know, with a lens of poverty to actually see that there's abundance and use that information to actually think about what we want to do in the future. Um, so it, it sounds kind of fuzzy, but it's been really fun working with the communities as they start to take ownership of who they are, what they have, um, and begin to really think about a collective dream together. Because otherwise, if we don't, the systems will continue to exacerbate the wealth gap. And, and, you know, the world is moving faster and faster. Almost every conversation I have, it's like, man, it's obvious. Like, what the heck? <laughs> and so development incentives will continue and people will continue to like, you know, people in neighborhoods and communities who are just trying to make it to their jobs, feed their kids, maybe bake some cakes on the side because they love doing that. You know, how can we teach them how to maybe turn that into a business and maybe teach those children what it means to create a business too? How might that impact our community 20 years from now if we teach um, and kind of teach that ownership as well, both community and financial? So that's, I would say, generational poverty is one of the biggest challenges or systemic challenges that I'm kind of wrestling with and trying to create some solutions for, because it's not just about helping people create businesses today. You know, I'm starting to, I'm, I'm trying to make that 20-year commitment to my community every day. Well, gosh, Adrian, thanks so much for uh, for being on Team Human and, and for what you're doing in, in KC and, and beyond. That was Adrian Haynes, attorney and social activist, one of a select subgroup of Team Human, real people doing real things. I'm delighted not sure if that's the right word, to introduce our next teammate, former energy and environment editor of Time magazine, who's been covering so many stories about the imminent collapse of our civilization that he decided to leave his job and begin investigating all the possible ways for this whole human story to end, many of them growing increasingly probable with each passing day. The result? A book called End Times, A Brief Guide to the End of the World. Playing for Team Human, author Brian Walsh. Have we always been this this apocalyptic in our thinking? I think we've been apocalyptic. That's always been sort of background in humanity. I think every generation has some suspicions it might be the last one. And there's always been, you know, these big natural catastrophes out there that could happen, you know, that have happened before in the sort of billion plus year history of the earth. Um, you know, asteroid impacts have happened, gigantic supervolcanic eruptions have happened. Um, those could still happen. But what's new here is we've invented all kinds of new risks with obviously nuclear war, climate change ongoing, and now these new ones coming from emerging technologies, biotechnology, artificial intelligence. All that together means I think we're in a more dangerous place than we've really been in human history before. And it's definitely the kinds of threats we're facing are more nonfiction. You know, it's not like Moloch or something coming and wiping us out. It's a thing. It's like a scientist, a germ. Or yeah. A yeah. It's, it's, it's not only is it nonfiction, often it's, it's due to us. You know, I mean, that's what really changed, you know, on July 16th, 1945, when the first nuclear bomb was tested at Trinity site, in New Mexico was suddenly this species that had evolved on this planet was in position to actually end itself, really, you know, and with the development of, of nuclear weapons and then with climate change that would follow. And now with these other new technologies, suddenly we have this power in our hands. Uh, we don't really have the wisdom to use it. And we're entering a, a time when there's going to be a lot of uncertainty going forward 
around that. And that's, that's totally new. I think we always had, obviously religion had its background, apocalyptic, you know, really apocalyptic thinking, but what's new about now is, is this technology and this, um, this ability to do it ourselves. And that puts us in a totally different position. And maybe more, more completely than other things like an asteroid comes and, you know, maybe kills all the dinosaurs, but it didn't kill the plankton and the all right, exactly. Stuff. Yeah, I mean, like it—it it actually cleared the way for for a lot of other life, including us, to eventually arise. Um, but what we're seeing with you know climate change is that like we are already sort of creating an extinction wave right now. You know, human beings are still going along, but we're eliminating vast numbers of species off this planet. So that's end times for you know a, a lot of other life forms we share in this planet to begin with. And now going forward, you know, whether it's going to be us, whether it's going to be the rest of the species on this planet. That is that is dangerous, and when we feel it, like we kind of sense it. You look at surveys, you see people have this sense that like things are worse than they've ever been before, which isn't really true from a material sense. But I think they feel that way because they know that we we you know we we face bigger threats, you know. And if something goes wrong on a sort of connected globalized economy, globalized civilization like we have now, it can spread in a way it could never do before, and therefore create sort of compounding damage to to a greater degree than ever before. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, for me, you know, the title "End Times" means more than one thing. End of the world, just end of times, and all that. You know, that's sort of the main idea. But also, there's there's, I mean, the conflict I think you're talking about is sort of between humans' ability to create progress and the downside, the unexpected consequences, the externalities of all that progress. So there's the kind of the the Steven Pinker sort of people that say, look at all, you know, you're, you're much less likely to get hit in the head with a rock, stabbed by a stranger, you know, die of a disease than ever before, and more people are out of poverty. I just went to this conference at Bretton Woods, and they had Larry Summers there, the, the yeah. former Harvard guy who was a secretary of the treasury. And he was saying, look, before you start blaming this economy for all the problems, you got to also remember that since World War II, look at all the good that's happened. And he starts listing all this stuff and poverty is down by this percent and all. And I keep thinking it sounds to me a little bit like a a, a, a weightlifter, you know, who's on the, the, the peak of his steroid binge saying, look how much more I'm lifting now. And I'm like, yeah, but there are these other things that are that are going. And there's this kind of tension then between the, the sort of original human urge for progress that kind of came in with the invention of time around the axial age when we started recording stuff and had prehistory and contracts and a forward history. But I start wondering, was this all really dumb? And maybe the sort of more indigenous people who didn't look at forward progress, but looked at more kind of circular progress was, was a better way. I think that's going to be the competition is to a certain extent going forward. You know, we have, yeah, you're absolutely sure. Steven Pinker is not wrong that like from a, from a sheerly material perspective, from a perspective of not getting a disease and dying when you're five, uh, you know, life now is better than it's been before. I, and I wouldn't really want to go back a hundred years. I wouldn't want to go back a thousand years probably for a lot of reasons. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean that that's sustainable or that it won't have a crash in the future. There's something I talk about in the book called the environmentalist dilemma, which is where, you look at that, you look at that sort of material progress, and then you look at all these sort of ecological indicators, whether it's 
carbon uh, concentration in the atmosphere, whether it's temperature, whether it's extinction, million other things, deforestation. And you sort of try to figure out why these two things happen. Shouldn't, you know, human beings are part of this planet. If we're destroying it, if we're sort of changing the climate to a degree we haven't seen in tens of thousands of years, shouldn't that begin to show up in things like GDP and so forth? And there's a lot of different possibilities around that. I mean, it could be that you know, we're just wrong. We're, we're measuring it. We're not as good as we're not as well off as we think we are. It could be that we can overcome it, you know, that technology and adaptation, the ability to make more food, the ability to sort of conquer disease enables us to live on a planet that, you know, in a materially prosperous way that that is kind of much more denuded of other kinds of life. Or it may be it's almost like thinking of like a financial crash where you may be doing great if you're spending, you know, you're borrowing money, you're, you know, you're spending beyond your means. But at some point, there's a crash, there's a contraction. And that might be what we're facing uh, on a lot of these issues, including, I think, climate. Most, most, you know, first and foremost. Yeah, but then the then the question is: Do we push through and progress forward to get out, or do we kind of contract, slow down, and move the other way, or some combination of the two? I mean, most of the kind of geoengineering Monsanto's gonna grow alfalfa on the top of the ocean or on a rock and you know we're gonna genetically engineer children to resist Ebola and you know and that's how we're gonna get to most of those just sound nuts to me I'm gonna shoot sulfur in the atmosphere or iron filings in the ocean and as as compared to is there time yet to go back to some kind of a Pennsylvania Dutch kibbutz-like organic permaculture thing? Can we just scale back and be okay? You know, that's what I, I grapple with at the end of the book. Yeah. You know, and and ultimately, I conclude that our our best way, probably the only way we're likely to go, is is forward. Is kind of trying to sort of innovate around these challenges to essentially outrun the limits that are that are creeping up behind us. Uh, and I I say that because I just you know, whether supporting overseas and, and, and in Asia, you know, during the first half of the of the first decade of the century, other places I've been, I see people, they want, they tend to want more, you know, they want more for their family, maybe, you know, they want, they start by wanting a, a more rich diet, then they start by wanting school, they want, they want cars and so forth. And it's been very hard to see us turning away from that, you know, and without some kind of real spiritual or philosophical revolution that just I just haven't seen. And so right, some Marion Williamson kind of thing. <laughs> essentially, right? yeah. You Coming might be, in and saying, yeah. look, you got all this money or read my billionaire's article or whatever. It's like they're not happy. They're unhappy. They're taking more drugs and committing more suicide. You know, that that would almost be a good thing for people to see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that could possibly be the, the case, you know, I mean, and and it might be a sort of soul by soul kind of change. Like that's, that's, you know, I don't see it coming, to, you know, from a government top to just the way governments are organized here in the U S even elsewhere. So maybe that change is possible and maybe it, it requires models and requires people to sort of experience a crash of some sort and really change. But then, you know, you look at something like the 2008 financial crash, you know, which had an enormous human impact on people around the world here in the U.S. Real you know, and you death. See, and yeah, you wrote real about death, it. Real yeah. death. Like real you, people you died. Not just cancer deaths. You can track right. deaths from suicide. And, right. It's and not just it, that someone ended up with bigger college loans. Right. You know, which is the way most of us experience. Right. Oh, well, what a horrible <laughs> crash. Or their house value went down or they had to move. It's like, no, dead people. Yeah. Right. And and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm always a little suspicious of like, well, maybe a crisis will sort of straighten us out. Because I remember... You know, in the early stages of that, uh, when I was at Time Magazine, you know, talking, I think we did a cover uh, about maybe this will sort of change the nature of America. You know, maybe we'll learn to like 
be okay with less. Maybe we'll learn to to rely on each other more. Not exactly. It really hasn't been the legacy of the 2008 financial crash. The legacy of, the, of that is what's what our current politics. Right. But legacy that's is fear. Yeah. From the way we responded to it. Mm-hmm. And when it started to happen, I was like, okay, Obama, it's time to send a PDF to every town in America showing how do you do local currencies? Right. How do you do favor banks? How do you do bottom up? And instead, he just printed money and gave it to Goldman, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think he saw, I, I, I feel like he saw what was doable in that situation and realized that was in his opinion, at least the best, like he was so scared. I think they were all so scared. Was this really going to go down? Was this really going to collapse this whole thing? And the fear of of what that would mean, means you do whatever you can to prop up the system. And maybe that all we're doing is postponing this, you know, uh, some kind of even worse reckoning or real end times down the line. Uh, But my human beings, and like when I see them, I just, I see a species that seems to be hardwired to grow, you know? Um, And with, if you're going to grow, we need to figure out ways to do it better right that's where we need that technology that's where we even need some of these technologies that could in themselves also pose a huge threat you know whether it's something like gene editing obviously whether it's something like ai um we may need those to solve the other problems and then we create new problems and then we solve those problems i mean that is kind of been the cycle of human history at least since i don't know industrialization but it feels like we're you know talking to a uh, uh a bodybuilder like who's gone on steroids. Then he's got, oh, shoot, now I'm starting to grow breasts. It's okay, we right. can add something to your stack for that. <laughs> it's like, well, now I'm not sleeping. Right. Oh, we'll add something to your stack for that. And it's like they keep looking for another thing until they're taking like 30, you know, yeah. they're injecting 30 things into their body. And then it's like, well, they're getting cancer or their bones are disappearing. You look at that plan and that's that maybe with the cases. We may be sort of constantly experimenting ourselves in an effort to stay ahead. I mean, like there's the end of the book, I talk about this uh, Oxford uh, at professor of ethics, Julian Savalescu, who has a crazy idea, essentially like where he believes that, you know, the danger we face is so great. Um, but at the same time is so, he's so convinced that human beings are not likely to be able to change that you would literally need to go in there and somehow in some sort of science fiction kind of way, gene edit, whatever, uh, engineer human beings to be more ethical, to literally be more altruistic. He, you know, he is, doesn't have confidence that that can be created via whatever institutions, by religion, by spirituality, by philosophy. Actually, no, we're going to need to just make human beings who are what nicer to each other and, and essentially change something that seems to be essential about who we are. And that to me, I saw that and I was like, that's how bad things are. I mean, that's if that's the case, if you really need to rely on rolling out a new line of, of the human model that somehow is uh, programmed to be ethical in order for us to be ethical in this way, then I just think that's that shows you how difficult it really is to change. Well, I mean, I do like it better as a transhuman strategy than like gills and, and you know, <laughs> whatever they want to give us. The gills you know? might be useful when the sea rises, but right. yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's a slightly positive, but that's, you know, that's what we used to say about LSD yeah. and pot. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, just if everyone was, I mean, and that, I, I believe that's why we're legalizing this stuff. Well, that's, isn't LSD and pot now essentially a, a capitalist? capitalistic consumer commodity you can go out to california and you can go into one of those stores that looks like a bed bath and beyond and essentially pick like you know processed uh marketed you know different versions different strains for every sort of thing you might need you know it's only a matter of time before even bigger business gets into that you know you know in the bay area lsd is becoming a thing now for founders to use to sort of be more creative i mean right you know and so you take something that was meant in the past to be countercultural to be sort of a dropping out of mainstream society instead it just gets co-opted which is what seems to happen right you get the you know board of directors of google go to burning man (laughs) once a year they trip their brains out and come back and then work with the nsa to spy on us again it's like what 
Yeah. Know, that, so I guess that, you know, my assumptions about where these drugs take a person are are <laughs> pretty personal and not universal. I guess that, you know, yeah, maybe it's personal and maybe, you know, in that case, it, it's, it shows with the person, you know, I mean, it's not going to utterly change your mind. It's going to sort of push you in a different direction. But really, at the end of the day, you still want these guys, at least, you know, the lives they, they have. And this is just sort of one more way to maybe to be more creative, one more way to just chill out in a different way. But it's being marketed to you by, you know, eventually the same people who bought you Budweiser and Coors Light and all the rest. So, But you feel better when you imagine science and technology offering us positive ways out. Uh, I'm not sure I'd say I feel better. I, I think what I feel is the trick is going to be with these dual use technologies, you know, I mean, things like AI, things like biotechnology, they have clear positive benefits. They have a, a huge existential risk downside. The key is going to be figuring out how to choose one from the other. And I think, you know, there is a lot of potential in there. I mean, you look at something like AI, that could be enormously helpful around dealing with something like climate change. I mean, to be able to say to have a much smarter system around using electricity, around reducing waste, or using that to invent better forms of, of energy, you know, ditto with something like biotechnology, where obviously the, the health benefits could be potentially huge. Uh, the benefits around, I think, around trying to create crops that are better prepared for the future we're bringing, I think is really key as well. Um, but that's going to be a world that's going to be going further in that direction. You know, it's not going to be a world that's going back towards a kind of a garden. It's going to be a world that we ourselves as human beings are shaping more and more. And we're doing that already. I mean, you know, the, the idea of the Anthropocene essentially is obviously the human geological epoch, I believe. We've been doing this sort of accidentally. You know, we've been shifting this planet really for, for thousands of years, hundreds of years, but especially intently over the last, you know, say 150 years, say the period of, of, of real industrialization. The trick I think is going to be, is there a way to do that in a more conscious way? You know, as opposed to just taking and taking and taking and only beginning to notice the side effects down the road. Is there, is there a possibility to be smarter about that? And maybe the AI will help us with that. I'm hoping getting the right people working on it, being ethical about it, whether that's something that's big in AI, obviously, but that should be the case in anything to do with biotechnology as well. That'll be the real trick. You know, um, are we going to do it? Are we smart and wise enough to do it? I don't know, honestly. Uh, our, our track record's not great, but we're also pretty good at, you know, facing what seems like impossible limits and then figuring out a way around that. You know, maybe that's just postponing a crash, but we, we do have a decent track record when it comes to sort of MacGyvering our way out of certain kinds of situations as a species, I'd say. And when you look at worst case scenarios, you don't see human extinction, absolute extinction in, in any of them. I mean, it's like the kind of worst cases you go down to a few hundred million people that kind of make it through. Most likely. I mean, like it's, it gets, once you start getting into that, it gets hard to really understand what would even happen. I mean, obviously, if a asteroid larger than the one that hit the dinosaurs comes, you, you know, there's a limit where it just actually sterilizes the planet. That could happen. Right. You know, we've seen geological events in the history of this planet that would definitely result in human extinction, the great dying, you know, the most famous of, of the great extinction waves. Definitely, if that were somehow to happen again, that would wipe out humanity. I don't see how we overcome that. I'd, right. But some botulism or something. I mean, live. probably then, not. No, I mean, but you know, yeah. the, the thing that scares me most about biotechnology as an existential risk is because it takes infectious disease, which has killed, obviously, more human beings than anything else, more than war, more than any kind of disaster. And 
potentially allows to kind of transcend the evolutionary limits that sort of keep a disease in check. You know, at the end of the day, yeah. we see there's something like Ebola, like a disease as virulent as Ebola is kind of limited in how far it can spread. You know, whereas something like the measles, uh, you know, not super deadly, extremely contagious. You know, there has to be that trade-off. But if you can do, you know, I, I have a scenario from the book where this uh, Johns Hopkins Center for Health, Secur Health Security does an actual war game around a gene-edited virus that's released into the population. And they take essentially the common cold, very contagious, as we all know, not super deadly, just very annoying, mix it with Nipah, which is a real-life virus in Southeast Asia that, that has about a 75% fatality rate. And suddenly you get essentially like a super flu, for lack of a better term. And it just burns through human beings. And that, that, would, that would worry me because if you could create a virus that, were so, that was somehow sort of had the best of both worlds, that's something I could see that would really potentially threaten all of us, you know, uh, especially if it could be changed on the go, you know, to in a way to sort of countermand any kind of defense. Um, and that's where I get that's where I get very worried. And there's dudes working on stuff like this. I mean, and some of them are just are not even just not with governments, even they're just like nasty people, mm -hmm. you know, and that, you know, and another thing you talk about toward the end of the book is sort of as these technologies proliferate and become more accessible, that our society in some ways is only as safe as the meanest, what the meanest person would do. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> a, uh, the, the, I talk about a Stanford scientist named James Fearon who had a sort of a talk where he, he imagined a world where let's say we all have a cell phone, we can all push a button and that cell phone, the world ends. So if every person on the planet had that ability, how long would the planet live? Oh, probably a few seconds at most. Cause there are enough you know, on the paths, essentially out there. So sociopath, psychopath, who would actually do that? Right. It's like, instead of having to go buy an AK-47 and go to my high school and shoot everyone up who was mean to me back when I was a kid, now I can just push this button or just release. Right. I could buy a kit at Walmart and create, you know, Ebola common cold. I mean, that's, it's funny. The mass shooting thing is kind of an interesting example because you, you know, on one hand, like, you know, again, like to go back to the Steven Pinker argument, like you're much less likely to be violently killed for the most part in most parts of this country, for instance. And yet that happens side by side, you know, in New York with like fewer murders than it has, you know, in, in years and years, side by side with we all live with this possibility that like we could be killed in a mass shooting event. Why is that? What's different? The difference is the weapons. The weapons that are available are enable us to kill large numbers of people in a, in a small amount of time. And I think that's the same with some of these other technologies, just on a much grander scale. So it gets very scary when you start to see these things get easier and easier. You know, uh, nuclear weapons were, have always been dangerous, remain dangerous, are probably more dangerous now than they've been since some of the worst years of the Cold War. But they're kind of, you know, it's a state yeah. issue. You know, states, it really takes a state to have a nuclear weapon to use it in any kind of meaningful way, especially on a global scale. Biotechnology, far more people know at least the basics of how to do that than the, the basics of nuclear engineering. And it's going to get easier and easier as it becomes something that's more like computer programming. You know, again, like go back to the 60s. There's a guy named Tom Knight in the book who he was a, a computer scientist at MIT back during the mainframe days. And he had to punch cards, very laborious, very hard to program. You know, fast forward now, everyone can program, you know, and we see what do we see uh, the Internet now? We see malware all over the place, you know, in part because it's so much easier to do. And now this guy, Tom Knight, is working in synthetic biology and he's like, this is happening to biology. Essentially, biology is moving towards a direction where it can be programmed like a computer. And that's both amazing because it's going to enable a lot of amazing positive things and scary because if you see anywhere near as many people who, you know, build computer viruses decide to do the same thing with biology, that's going to be a very dangerous world, I think. 
Yeah. I mean, and, and it's not even just like the, the island of Dr. Moreau that they're going to clone strange animals and whatever. It's making actual dangerous stuff and just weaponizing yeah. germs. Yeah. I mean, the, the germs are right there to be to be weaponized. And, you know, and we, you know, armies have been trying to weaponize germs for all of human history. It's always been very difficult. Germs don't generally follow with what you want to do. They don't they don't follow orders like soldiers. But, you know, this kind of program whether it's something that a state would do or probably even more likely something that like a lone person or lone group would do who just wanted to create a lot of havoc and danger, it's going to be doable. You know, I mean, James Clapper, who was Obama's national director of intelligence, I think, um, you know, named CRISPR and gene editing more generally a weapon of mass destruction back in 2016 because, yes, that's exactly what it could potentially do. It could enable a weapon of, uh, to be created that could destroy on a mass scale. I mean, didn't we got to wonder what's our responsibility as as thinkers and dreamers, and do our kind of science fictiony thriller fantasies and cultural products promote this kind of thinking? Like when we move from the kind of the the science fiction of my youth, which was so positive and monorails, and we're going to go colonize Mars and do cool things. When we move from that through Blade Runner to you know, are we sort of as thinkers and writers, are we sort of responsible for the collective imagination? I think so. And I think you look at sci-fi today and it's exactly what it's doing. And it's being actually seen or recognized as a source of being able to imagine the future. You know, and it, yeah, you, you know, you mentioned a lot of dystopic kind of angles. And I do think that's always going to be part of it. Um, but you, you see sort of a movement as well for a more positive Maybe not utopian, because I think we know too much to imagine the kind of utopia that seemed possible maybe in the dawn of the Internet age at this point, uh, certainly with everything we have to live through. But there are ways to, to, to think about a world where maybe it's possible to use these technologies in a, in a way that's equitable, possibly. I mean, it's been hard so, so far. Uh, you know, and you look at who's doing the research around something like AI, you know, it's gigantic tech companies. You know, it's they're doing it uh, in a closed way to a large extent, um, which should worry us to, you know, a, a lot, I think. Um, or someone like Elon Musk, you know, experimenting with brain machine interfaces. And, you know, he simultaneously seems to have both, I don't know if utopian is a word, but sort of optimistic view of what we're, you know, what we can do, imagining we can colonize Mars within, you know, his lifetime. And the same time, you know, fears about AI and fears about, you know, a real existential risk. That, so I think those two things are going to happen side by side, because you can see a world, you can see it going down both possible roads. You can see a road where, it leads to something that makes Blade Runner look like, you know, a romantic comedy. And then it leads towards something that we can actually create a, a better planet, like a create a, a world where we're not as vulnerable to disease, where we can, you know, deal with disorders, where we can maybe begin to solve issues around something like mental health, which is, you know, escaped so many of us, um, you know, create a world where poverty is less. I just don't know how it's going to, I don't know how we're going to get there, but, you know, beginning to imagine that, whether it's in essay writing, whether it's in, in novels, at least creates that and puts that out in the world and is out in the world then it has a chance actually becoming true i think i mean some of it for me has to do with and maybe this is too psychedelic a perspective but kind of mental discipline if our civilization is basically having a bad trip right now you know which i think we are and partly because of the internet we didn't understand the power of this we didn't listen to timothy leary who said that our set and setting about the internet is going to define you know how it how uh, uh, how it plays out. That now we're in a place where anyone can take one turn and go down a tunnel and get lost in that uh, uh, really dark place. But the more we start thinking about this sort of 
tipping point, high leverage points for civilizational collapse, it almost feels like the person who's so worried when they're walking down the Grand Canyon that they're going to want to just jump in that they can't help themselves. In other words, it's like, just stop thinking about so it. So like a civilization death wish kind of thing. It feels feeling. like there's some some of that going on. I, th I The thing is, I don't think people really, they, they, they think they're thinking about it, but th they're not. If you did, you would take steps to prepare for it. And I don't mean, you know, going out into the woods and creating your prepper cabin. I mean, like, there are things that could be done now that would at least raise the chances of us surviving should something very bad go, go wrong. Uh, something I look, talk about towards the end of the book is researching alternative foods. What a lot of these events have in common is that they would involve like the loss of sunlight, you know, an asteroid impact, super volcano, nuclear war, uh, potentially geoengineering going wrong. And suddenly you can't grow food as you did before. Um, what do you eat? Uh, there's a great guy named David Den Kenberger at the University of Tennessee who is experimenting on this, like mushrooms. You know, you could actually create bacteria that's edible via natural gas, all these kind of different ways. No one's really researching that. There are a few think tanks. But it seems to me that's something we should actually working on it. And that's to some degree like a, a legacy of the nuclear era. I think, you know, back then, like uh, the government had civil defense plans. And once you saw how many weapons were out there, it just seemed absurd, right? Like you weren't going to survive right. by ducking and covering. You weren't going to do that. But actually, you know, there are things you can do, you know, and it's important not just so much for us. This isn't just about us, our, our, us, you and I and everyone else who lives right now staying alive. It's for the future. If we go extinct or if our civilization is so damaged doesn't ever recover that completely changes the trajectory of the future you know there there's you know all the billions of people who knows how many actually you know depending on how long the species could live may not come around or they not have the same kind of lives they would have because we failed to prepare right now and that that sort of sense of responsibility i think is an important thing to keep in mind it's very hard because we don't think about the future very well you know both in our own lives uh, let alone you know the f the future that we won't actually see like literally, you know, you can go into an fMRI in a brain and you ask yourself to, you know, ask the person to think about yourself in the future and like the, the sense of identity won't light up as much as when you think about yourself now. Um, right. But, I mean, it's the sort of the, the basic behavioral finance yeah. insight that, you know, we can either use properly or currently it's just being exploited. Right. Credit card companies and everybody else gets us to act against our own best interests by leveraging that. Right. Yeah. And so this is where, you know, it can, it can maybe thinkers have a role. My feeling about trying to make people understand is, is, is an exercise in frustration. You know, I mean, I wrote for years about whatever study was coming out, you know, I went to UN climate change conferences and reported on them and said, you know, we're falling short of, of this and that, and these targets that we need to meet. And so I don't, I, I've lost a little bit of faith in the ability to sort of, okay, you, you know, if I give you science, you will act in a certain way. Like right. That's that's part of my pessimism right. around this. And plus, uh, yeah. I mean, the kind of conferences, and I saw that you mm -hmm. you went to them too. The kind of conferences that I would get invited to, really through the '90s and even to today, are I, I get invited to get flown business class to Puerto Rico to hang out with with like Deepak Chopra and Al Gore and a bunch of people drinking out of plastic bottles in this air conditioned resort that everybody flew to, like. How are we going to talk about climate change? You know, the, the, the damage that we just did so far outweighs, you know, the propaganda we're giving to each other. There's actually a term for this. You know, it's called climate dissonance. And it, it, it relates to the fact that we all feel that we're implicated in climate change. That's what makes it really different than all the other risks here. You know, we're, we're implicated to different degrees. But if we live in a rich world, you know, we're consuming energy. Maybe we're having children. You know, we're continually part of the problem. And so we feel a sense of guilt around that. Um, and I think that can be kind of paralyzing, or I think for a lot of people, 
it causes them to disregard it altogether. I think what, a lot of what you see of climate denialism is not, you know, people out there sort of finding alternative scientific explanations, but really they feel they kind of know deep down that it's happening and they feel guilty about being, so, being, being part of it. And so, you know, like as almost like a psychological defense, they kind of push it out of their minds. They, they deny it, you know, and, and I think that's, that's one of the things that holds us back and that's tough to overcome. You know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think we need a different kind of technological approach that kind of takes that away as opposed to counting on human beings to really be different. It's so easy to fall into cynicism and despair. So, I mean, I even hesitate bringing this up, but I'm reading, um, James Lovelock has a new book. Uh, and he's the guy that did for people who don't know, who came, you know, came up with the Gaia hypothesis originally originally and kind of like a almost a, a Rachel Carson like visionary about the life of the planet and how it's at risk. And in his new book, he says pretty much that the amount of energy required to recycle plastic into new plastic is greater than is worth it. That in terms of environmental degradation, you're better off throwing out a plastic bottle than trying to recycle it into another one. And the reason I hesitate to share something like that is because it's like, well, then fuck it. You know, then everybody's just like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to throw my plastic bottles away. And I mean, but maybe they should. But the real we shouldn't be using plastic bottles to begin with. There's just no fix for that. Well, that's that's the tricky thing. I mean, because you the reality is like these solutions are probably they're not really going to become come from you or I hugely changing the way we live. If we all did. If we suddenly swept away or we reprogrammed ourselves to be different, that might be a different story. The reality is they'll come from politics and they'll come from science. They'll come from figuring out a better, you know, way that doesn't involve plastic, some some new substance, I think. You know, and and that's one of the reasons I'm I really feel like the one of the best solutions we really need to focus on is figuring out a way to capture carbon dioxide from the air. Um, you know, solar geoengineering, the one we're sort of more accustomed to, that's probably potentially going to happen. That's a real second order. I mean, that's that's going to carry a lot of problems with it. But if we could figure out a way to essentially treat this as a waste product that we can just get rid of, remove, then it solves a lot of problems. A, like we can directly reduce climate change much faster than sort of waiting around, you know, the impacts of changing our, our you know, our, our energy habits because carbon is in the atmosphere for, you know, decades and centuries. Um, but also it, 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 get ri- it gets rid of that dissonance that I mentioned. You know, it's like, Instead of carbon being a thing we feel guilty about but can't really change and therefore sort of just try to get out of our mind, it actually just takes it away. And I think that's incredibly important. And it, it, I feel like we need something along the lines of a moonshot program, a Manhattan project, whatever metaphor you want to use around that. But right now it's mostly you know, some, some laboratories or a guy in the University of Arizona who works on it. There are some companies working on it. But you need more than that, I feel like, just because it's – it could be the most important thing, you know, humans can do right now. If we can figure out that particular problem, that would give us more security than anything else I can currently imagine. Yeah, and the other, I mean, uh, the kind of universal constant in all this is that, you know, facing such challenges, human beings have always done better working together. Yeah, that is absolutely true. <laughs> you know, yeah. Thus, you know, sort of the whole team human yeah. meme here is if we start seeing ourselves as a collective rather than individuals, it of course it changes our strategies towards survival and, and and sustainability, but it can kind of, you know, lessen the decree of a lot of these perhaps inevitable uh impacts. I I, I agree. What I worry about is we don't, you know, it's it's we seem to have a hard time coming together, you know, and I don't mean the kind of like kumbaya politics kind of way i mean literally like 
in part because of technology, we are enabled to sort of follow our own individual, encouraged to follow our individual path more than ever before. You know, we the, the sort of institutions that anchored you to any kind of community, whether it was larger families, whether it was religion, you know, whether it was certain philosophical traditions, uh, whether it was just the fact that you tended to be geographically limited in terms of who you were talking to. Right. It was the weird kid who left the town. Right, exactly. And now, you know, you don't have to leave the town to connect to people everywhere. And we thought, I think, that that was going to be an amazing utopia, that actually all this connection would uh, make us, you know, better humans, that would, it would, we'd, we'd see differences and, and be able to understand them. That's not happened. And, you know, maybe this was another technology we just weren't ready for. We, we literally, the internet is something that's like too, we're not wise enough to use the internet, which is, I think if you look at the internet, it seems to be true on like a daily basis. Um, and you could argue, of course, the way it's been constructed to privilege uh, advertising is at the root of a lot of these problems. I definitely think that's the case. Um, but just the reality is like it's, you know, we're encouraged to live individually. So then to come together as a community is, is hard, you know, um, because we see these differences and they get maximized. Even if those differences are small, differences within sort of one political group just seem very maximal. Um, and maybe in the event of a crisis, that would change. You know, maybe we would come together. You know, I think that was the case. You know, you, the example of 9 11 is probably a good one. I think at the end of the day, you know, we, we are on this planet and we have to live, you know, and, and you can live in fear or constantly worry about what's what you're losing um but you know that's part of life always you know the end times comes for all of us eventually individually usually um and we still manage to go on you know maybe in part by denying it maybe in part by embracing it maybe in part by thinking we can transcend it if you were like some people in silicon valley these days but it's coming and so th that doesn't mean you don't live that doesn't mean you don't try to make the most of your life uh in every way you can well, thank you. Thank Thanks you. for being on Team Human. Absolutely. You've been listening to Team Human. Our guest today was the author of End Times, Brian Walsh. You can find out more about his work at endtimesthebook.com. You can find out more about Brian and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a member of the team and keep the following folks alive. This show is edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our producer is Josh Chapdelin. Our community manager is Michael Bass. A shout out to some of our longtime Patreon supporters, Anderson Bell, Ada Paris, Paul Lindner, Kerry Smith, and John Stein. More to come. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College and posted every week at my editorial home, Medium. See you next time or in between. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.